The Top 100 Clubhouse Podcast is brought to you by Eden Mill, bringing the tradition of distilling whiskey and gin back to St Andrews, the home of golf. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Top 100 Clubhouse, the ultimate podcast for golf course enthusiasts worldwide. I'm your host, James Henderson, and we're about to embark on a journey through lush fairways and breathtaking landscapes, as well as delving deep into the minds of fascinating individuals from every corner of the golfing universe. Get ready to explore the world's top golf courses through the eyes of those who know them best. This week on the Top 100 Clubhouse, we have Chandler Withington. Chandler was head pro at Hazeltine for the 2016 Ryder Cup, and we go into what it takes to win a Ryder Cup, and also him meeting his hero, Davis Love. Enjoy. Hello, Chandler. How, how are you? James, I'm wonderful. Great to meet you at the Walker Cup, and great to be on with you now. That was good fun, wasn't it? The Walker Cup was a hell of a place. I love the Walker Cup, and it, for it to be at St. Andrews, for the weather to be the way that it was, um, was magical. I, I've been looking forward to getting over there for so many years and it didn't disappoint. Yeah, it's a, it was a special tournament and so many good people around as well. The fact that you're just walking the fairways watching these best golfers, amateur golfers in the world is amazing. Well, I think that's really it. I've, I've told a number of people for years now, I'm like, look, you, everyone talks about going to the majors and the majors are, are great. The Masters, US Open, Open Championship, PGA. You should want to go to those, but you should really want to go to Walker Cups. Like you shouldn't miss Walker Cups because of what you just said. It's the intimacy uh, that you get that you don't get in a major. I've heard so many people say like, you know, the 150th Open at St. Andrews, it was great because of the atmosphere, but you really couldn't get that close to the golf. Uh, whereas, you know, Walker Cup, we're walking right down the middle of the fairways behind these these great players like Gordon Sargent or Preston Summerhay is uh, on down the list that, will eventually get to the PGA Tour, European Tour, et cetera. Um, you're watching them up close and personal with uh, you know barely a gallery rope, and it's pretty special. Yeah, well, when you can just walk across fairways, it's wild. Well, especially for me. like I, I've still never played the old course. Um, and so for me to walk right down the middle of the fairways, get close to the greens, and really get a feel for the golf course with your feet, you know, hopefully that will really prepare me for the time that I do get to come back and play. Well, when you do come back, you're going to have to get in touch with me. We'll get you some good golf courses. Um, so tell me how you got into golf. What's your? Yeah, I think my introduction to golf was more of an accident uh, than anything. I, I grew up on the East Coast of the United States here in uh, New Jersey. I grew up playing baseball and hockey. Those were my first two loves. And looking back, I, I don't remember having a single friend that, that played golf. It just wasn't that sport uh, for young kids at the time. This was the late 80s, early 90s, uh, still you know five, six, seven years away from Tiger Woods. The My impression of golf growing up was, well, that's the, the sport that old men start playing when they can't run, jump, catch, swim. You know, when all the athleticism leaves you, that's you start playing golf. I, we had an extra neighbor who was a fire chief. You know, he smoked cigars in his driveway, and, and he's the only person that I knew that played golf. So that was just my impression was like, okay, you know, when you get to the twilight of your life, uh, and you really can't do anything else. That's when you start playing. Well, I, we ended up going down to uh, Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, the spring of 1992 on our spring break. And we met our, you know, the, the golf, more golfing side of our family, my cousins and uncles uh, that played golf. We were actually staying 
in a house on Harbor Town. It was the week of the PGA Tour. The MCI Heritage at the time was going on, and the PGA Tour golf was going on in our backyard. And my my cousins who were around my age were saying, "All right, let's go watch golf." And I'm like, nah, "You can go have fun. I'm, I'll pass. You know, I'd, I'd rather sit inside <laughs> on a nice sunny day." But but I think for anyone who's watched professional golf live, you know, the first time you see it live, it it, it hits you and it captures you, especially when you go sit behind a par five tee like we did and watch these guys hit drivers. This was right around the time that uh, metal was coming into the game. You know, still had some players playing persimmon, um, you know, 1992. I remember Bernhard Langer had a persimmon driver and he, you know, he won the masters uh, the next year. Right. So, uh, but a younger player came around and hit a persimmon driver out of sight. And he was younger back then was late twenties and he made it look so easy. It sounded like a gunshot and the ball just went forever. And I was like, you know, we never see anything like that. You know, I'll, I want to do that. Can I, can I ever learn to do that? Um, so we followed him around uh, the rest of the week because he was the young player. I learned later he was the local favorite and he ended up winning the tournament. So immediately became my favorite player and driving home to New Jersey from that trip. I remember telling my dad, yeah, golf, you know, that wouldn't be the worst thing. And um, I came home, uh, didn't, again, didn't, my, my family didn't play, my, my dad didn't play. So my education as a kid was I would VCR that player whenever I saw him on TV in contention tournament. I'd turn on the VCR and record and I would rewind and watch and I'd go in the backyard and just try to imitate what I saw, you know, his golf swing. And uh, my favorite player growing up was Davis Love. That's who I wanted to be like and uh, I've tried to emulate ever since. But um, that was my start. Uh, I got into caddying not long after at Somerset Hills in New Jersey and uh, eventually went off to uh, – to a professional golf management school, which is something that if you had asked me at the age of 12, you know, golf is going to be your life. I, I hadn't even touched a golf club to that point. So <laughs> it was uh, a great accident uh, to end up in the game of golf, but I'm so glad that uh, life took me to Harbor town in the, the spring of 92, the way that it did. It seems to be a reoccurring theme that a uh, few of the people that I interview who've gone on to do great things within the golf game tend to be people that didn't grow up around golf or I don't know whether that's added a drive in them to be able to, I don't know, appreciation for the game greater than someone who grew up with it. I'm not sure. Well, I listened to your podcast with Bob Ford um, and Bob had a similar story. You know, I know Bob's story. I haven't been spent time around him, but um, maybe, you know, everyone has a different journey and the light bulb goes on for people at different times. Um, but I think it's more the people that, as you go along with golf that surround you, uh, that, that feed into you. You talked about, you know, I heard listening to Bob Ford talk about Lou Worsham and Lou Worsham you know, fed into Bob Ford. And I had people like that in my life, um, that, that helped grow your love of the game. So I think there's finding the game, but then there's the people around you who just help you develop that love. And maybe that's, you know, where Bob and I both got lucky. Who was the people that, um, who was the person or people that helped you develop your game? Well, it's, it's a long list, right? I think when you look back, you realize how many people had their hand in it. But uh, the first person was uh, the pastor of our church, uh, a man named Mike Grubbs. Uh, he was, you know, again, we knew one knew so many people who, who play golf. Uh, but Mike, made me my, he made me my first set of clubs and took me down to golf camps in, in Pinehurst and uh, was that guy that, that first kind of helped me understand why this game is so great. And then uh, I got so lucky to work for uh, – really a disciple of Bob Ford, a former assistant from Oakmont. Uh, his name was Greg Lecker. And I found Greg at Canoebrook in New Jersey uh, when I was just starting my summer internships from college. Um, 
and ended up going back and spending three straight summers with Greg. And I think as I still look back now, um, 25 plus years, 30 years in golf, uh, Greg is easily still my biggest influence and most impactful person who shaped me as uh, a golf professional and person who loves the game. So from, um, so you went to work at Seminole. How long were you at Seminole? I got to spend a few winters at Seminole and uh, it, it happened uh, right after I, I got out of college. I went to a small school in North Carolina called Campbell. It's 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 just above Pinehurst, and uh, I went back. Um, well, I didn't want to go back to New Jersey coming out of school. Um, I think my mindset was like a, I had so much fun in school. I didn't really want to grow up yet, and um, so I didn't. I moved uh, just up the road to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I, I had a great job at uh, Governor's Club coming out of school. But a, a couple of summers out of out of school, I, I went in for a performance review. I got handed a two week check and I got laid off from my first job. And that was the, the moment that I had kind of had to step back and look at my life and, you know, as being a golf professional, who I want to be and um, am I ready to assert myself and, and find out if this is really who I am. And uh, luckily I got the opportunity to go back to New Jersey, work some more for Greg Lecker at Canoebrook. And uh, again, yeah, Greg had worked for Bob Ford at Oakmont and Bob Ford had just started spending winters at Seminole uh, a few years prior. And um, without even really getting uh, an interview or a, or a call, uh, I remember Greg just said, hey, you're going to go spend the winter at Seminole with Bob. You know, I, I just come <laughs> off almost getting knocked out of the industry. And here I am now, I'm, I'm going to you know get to spend a couple winters around one of the best. Um, and that was such a blessing uh, just to watch that man operate on a daily basis, both as a player, a teacher, uh, a mentor, a coach. But um as a golf professional who has to handle so many different personalities that come through the turnstile at Seminole, um, Bob has so much grace. And I think, yeah, I listened to him again on your pod. When I listened to him talk about his, his time around Arnold Palmer, you know, Arnold had that gift of just making everyone feel important. The people that were right in front of them. And, um, I'm glad I got to, to, to be around Bob for a couple of winters. It, it served me well. It's a great, uh, great skill to have, especially in golf pro, Pro Jobs, um, he's an amazing man. Um, so you spent a couple summers uh, with Bob at Seminole, and then you moved to Marion, was it? I did. Um, you know, we, we spent a couple winters at Bob, and you know, Bob was really hitting his stride. If he wasn't there already, with how many assistants he was sending out from Mokmont, and then to add Seminole to it, it you think you, you kind of knew if you got to spend time around Bob, it was going to prepare you to be a head professional and. And I felt like I was heading down that road. And in the, the winter of 2006, um, I was expecting to go back to Florida. And Bob said, look, I think you've got all you, you need from me. I think you're, you're ready to go and become a head professional. And I had started interviewing for head professional jobs. And then at the same time, a friend of mine just down the road in Philadelphia, I was in New Jersey for the winter, um, called me. His name was Kevin Muldoon. Uh, Kevin was heading out to, to become the first assistant at Shinnecock Hills, but he was leaving Marion. And the other two assistants were leaving Marion and he kind of walked me into the interview with Scott and I, the pro at Marion. And, and, um, I think while I felt like maybe I was ready to be a head pro going to be the lead assistant at Marion was going to further prepare me for that. And to get a chance to even work at a place like Marion, you know, who wouldn't take advantage of that. So, uh, it was the great, uh, detour, if you even would call it that. And, um, you know, get to spend. I think my mindset going in was, well, I'm going to be here for a few years, and uh, and I'm ready to go. And then off all sail. 
And I think the, the harsh reality sets in, James, that when you're trying to get to the top of the mountain and being a head professional, it's, there are only so many opportunities. It's pretty wide, wide berth when you want to be an assistant. There's a lot of opportunity there, but the only one person can get to the top of the hill is that professional. And is, as good as I thought I was, all of a sudden you find yourself competing against the first assistant from Oakmont and the first assistant from Wingfoot and Shinnecock and all these other great clubs. And it's real competitive. And I think when I thought it was going to take me just a few years, I ended up being at Marion for six until I could really figure out the combination to the safe um, and breaking through and getting the opportunity that we did at Hazeltine in the fall of 2012. The amazing thing about um, you, I can imagine it must've been quite difficult for you because you're going from Seminole to Marion to then going for a head pro job. And there's very few head pro jobs in the, world let alone in the u.s that would compete against working at seminole and marion so did you have a an expectation of quality of golf course or standing that you wanted to uphold well i think you're actually touching on something that's very valid and i think a lot of other assistants that have followed me and been at similar clubs have the same mindset is i think my biggest fear was having worked at some of these great places is that i'm going to go to a place where I'm not ex- as excited about playing the golf course as I was at those great places. That was really it for me. It was not the stature of the place, you know, top 100 or a championship. Yeah, I was, I was happy to go to the fixer-upper. I just wanted to be excited about the golf course. Um, I wanted to know that I was, if I were in my office and it were pouring rain outside, that I would still want to go play the golf course. Uh, that was my fear was I'm going to take one of these jobs and not be excited about the golf course. So, I actually interviewed for a number of smaller jobs that I was just excited about some in Philadelphia that I was just excited about the golf course. And again, I just, I really hadn't figured out how to communicate who I was and how I could help that club yet until uh, I got some help. I had a, a great coach who came along at the end of the road here, helped me understand how to kind of put those things all in a line um, to where it was a fit at Hazeltine. But that was, I think what you hit on is just, that was my fears, not so much the standing of the golf course, um, but it's just the, you know, wanting to look forward to playing that golf course all the time because once you get to a place, that's where you're probably going to be for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And um, what did you offer Hazeltine, Hazeltine that um, they were looking for when you managed to? Yeah, I think uh, I actually asked that question uh, in the in the first interview. Was you know you you brought me out here from Philadelphia. You, you gave me an interview. You obviously think I can help you in some way. What is it? That, I, that can bring to here. And I remember their response was along the lines of, well, you know, you've worked at some great places, Seminole and Marion. We want you to kind of bring the eyes and ears that you've had at those two great places and come here and continue to help us grow. And I was interviewing at Hazeltine in the year that they were celebrating their 50th anniversary. And look at how much they've accomplished in 50 years. They're, they're actually still a club that's growing and evolving and cementing their legacy and their identity. So they wanted me to kind of bring those eyes and ears in. Um, they liked that I've been a part of preparing for major championships. We have, you know, we've gone through preparing for the 2013 U S open at Marion. And I think having someone who's, who's been around some of that with the USGA and the PGA was going to help specifically with the Ryder cup only four years away with the time that I was interviewing. Um, and they liked the network of, again, working at places like, you know, Seminole Marion working for the masters, uh, the network that I was going to potentially bring in there would help. And I think, they also felt like some of my best years were ahead of me. Uh, they knew there was going to be a learning curve, which there, which there 
I would tell you there, there certainly was in not being a head professional before. They knew there was going to be a learning curve with that. But I think they also felt like I could be molded um, and find myself. Um, I was uh, potentially replacing a, a man who had been in the seat for 37 years in Mike Schultz at Hazeltine. And I was only 34 years old at the time. I hadn't lived as long as he had been the pro there. So, um, you know, they, they bet on me. I think I remember, you know, hearing Bob Ford talk about it in your podcast. It's like you know, Oakmont bet on Bob Ford and uh, Tim Curo and the committee at Hazeltine, you know, took a, a bet on me. And I was in the finalist. I was sure, you know, from the farthest, you know, sure thing that there was. But um, they took a chance. And, and I like to think that I helped them out for the nine years that I was there. Well, uh, your Hazeltine um, run started, uh, ended with, well, not ended, but um, kind of reached the peak in the Ryder Cup, hosting a Ryder Cup. Um, from an outside point of view, you might have had the different experiences that uh, getting a 20 handicapper to a two or something. But uh, the just before we moved to the Ryder Cup, I want to ask, from being, what's the difference between being a head pro at a major tournament and being a first assistant at something like the PGA? So two major tournaments and then having two different roles. Well, I think when when you're a head professional at a place that's going to host a major championship, I think the first thing you realize is that it's it's not all on you, right? So you've got uh, the chairman uh, for the tournament from the club, who's really the point person of the club. You have the director from either the USGA or the PGA. And those two people are in constant contact and communication and really doing all the heavy lifting, the planning. Uh, really, as, as a professional, you're more in a, in a support role more than anything. So take the Ryder Cup at Hazeltine National. You had the chairperson, who's Patrick Hunt, working with Jeff Hintz from the PGA. Those two people are really taking a lot of the work. I'm just kind of a, hey, if there's anything you need me to do, more of my role for the Ryder Cup was to just be an ambassador for the tournament, um, really engage the local community help them understand they may not even know what the Ryder Cup is. And, and I did so many talks and presentations on here's what this tournament is and here's why you don't want to miss it. You know, uh, and our tagline, Amazing. James, we, the, our tagline now, which we laugh about, and, you know, I was able to say with a straight face because we believed it, never been done before, was this will only come around once in our lifetime. You know, don't miss it. <laughs> of course, you know, Obviously that's changed. It's changed uh, and it never happened before, but, um, we thought it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, turns out it will be coming back to Hazeltine in 2029. Um, but really, I think that was my hat was um, I don't have to do all the planning for this. The, there are so many people that are more involved in that than, than I am. I just need to help tell the story that when people are at Hazeltine, guests are playing golf. It's uh, some of the questions we talked about before we got on the air, which is, you know, what, what are the logistics? How is this going to look and feel if I come out and attend? Um, what do I need to know? And uh, answering those, so many of those type of questions and being so well versed in the history of the tournament uh, was really my sweet spot. So um, I was all too happy to talk about that event, you know, for the years leading up to it. The um, From a club point of view, what were the complexities that you had from hosting the tournament? You obviously talked about engaging the local population, but outside of that as well, what other things... Did you find difficult? Well, I think uh, before I got there, I, and I got to Hazeltine uh, just after the 2012 Ryder Cup in Chicago, the the executive committee had gone to Medina in 2012 to really research what are the logistics of this event. You've got 40,000, 50,000 people 
coming to your property? How are we going to get all these people into the property and off the property? But I think Hazeltine really started looking at the fan experience in Chicago. Chicago had a lot of traffic challenges around Medina. So Hazeltine was trying to look at how do we flow the buses? Where are they going to come from? How are the people going to get in and out of here? And thankfully, Hazeltine's really kind of located in a, in a corner of Minneapolis that gave a lot of free flow uh, to get people in and out of there. They didn't want people to be standing in bus lines for hours and waiting in traffic and missing the golf and panicking because they can't get a, a seat on the grandstand that they want. Uh, but then also once on the property, what is the fan experience? And I, I give the club a lot of credit for having the foresight. Uh, they actually changed the routing for the Ryder Cup in a unique way that they could. It would only work for the Ryder Cup, but they they kind of made a, a crossover there at holes four and 13 where they kind of split off the last five holes. And that was done specifically for the fan experience of what are the last five holes and how are people going to see that kind of golf for the last five holes if the matches get really tight and uh, the seventh hole ended up being a, a better hole than, than 16 for that, right? So seven became 16. Um, so for them to see that routing, I think was really the, the hidden genius in it and to pull it off the way that they did. Uh, I think for the years following the Ryder Cup, we just, I, every time somebody was like, well, I was here, I said, what was your experience like? And, and it was all positive. Um, they, they got to see what they wanted to see. And of course, you can't replicate the energy and the excitement and the moments that are a match like Patrick Reed versus Roy McElroy gives you on a Sunday morning or the weather or, or the outcome. So all of that plays into it, right? I think Hazeltine Nationals history in, in major championships, if you went back you know, 30, 40 years prior, the 1970 US Open, the first round started with 30 to 40 mile an hour winds and everyone's shooting 85. And it, it really handicapped Hazeltine for a number of years because you know, I think the players, you know, Dave Hill's like, what are we doing here? Um, yeah. it, took, it took Hazeltine you know, about 20 years to recover and get another chance with the 1991 U.S. Open. So when, when weather and things like that and the outcome go your way, I mean, look at, you know, Ryder Cup's coming back to Hazeltine. It clearly went their way uh, that week. And uh, those are the things that are so out of – there are things that you can't control, uh, but there's so many things that you can't. And when the things that you can't go your way, it's, you know, you just kind of thank the gods, don't you? They, um, do you think the U.S. Uh, GA – like or the P and the PGA like the fact that uh, Reese Jones is involved within the club. Well, I think what 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 I what I know about majors these days, um, architecture is becoming more of the talking point. And look, there's there's an arms race going on here in the states, isn't there? Um, between oh yeah, Gil Hanses and Andrew Greens and Corin Crenshaws. But look at you know we're Not just from the yeah. Well, look just where major championships are getting played. Oak Hill just had injury green renovation. You know, LACC just had a Gil Hance renovation, right? Uh, Pinehurst had a Cork Crenshaw renovation for next year for the U.S. Open. So all these great major venues, you know, Baltusrol just got upgraded and Congressional just got upgraded and Medina's going through it. And, uh, you know, going down the list, Oakland Hills, right? So um, I think when you look at if you go back to when Hazeltine started in 1962, Robert Trent Jones uh, was touching so many of the U.S. Open golf courses at the time. And Hazeltine was founded by a former USGA president, Totten Heffelfinger. And he was able to get Hazeltine kind of in that lineup at a time that not a lot of uh, new clubs were getting added. I think when I look back at 
US Open history, I think it was really just Hazeltine and Atlanta, Atlanta Athletic that were able to get into that lineup in the 60s and 70s. And um, so you had Robert Chen Jones take the golf course for so long, hand it down to his son, Reese, uh, who's handled the golf course since. But um, don't know if you saw the news, uh, the recent news with Hazeltine. They've, they've kind of put Davis Love as the architect on record. Um, and oh, I don't wow. And I don't know what that looks like, uh, but Davis is going to be the next person to, to put his hands on the golf course. Um, when and what and all the details, I don't think anyone knows yet, but uh, they'll be making a change of direction. I think that's just in line with what we're seeing with major championship venues. It's just uh, the way that golf has been is probably not the way that golf is going to look like for the next 50 years. You know, We're all waiting to see what's going to happen with the golf ball and how's that going to impact how the game is played at the highest levels and what does a championship test look like? But I think aside from the golf course, what makes Hazeltine such an attractive venue uh, for both the USGA and the PGA is just the land. And what Hazeltine has in spades that so many other clubs would love is they, when they opened the golf course in the 60s, they just they grabbed all the land. There was so much out there. They okay. went so far away from the city where no one was. It was hard to recruit members you know, because you were so far out there. <laughs> in the 60s but over time has become one of their biggest assets it's just the flexibility of the land because it's become look at the Ryder Cup doesn't fit in many places anymore um, do you know the um, the acreage of the property well I think Hazeltine was somewhere around 750 to 800 acres just total property but um, you take it's the Ryder property it's a lot um, but take I think infrastructure for the Ryder Cup in 2016 was something like over a million square feet of temporary infrastructure I imagine by the time it comes back in 29, it'll, you know, could potentially double. <laughs> so it's uh, crazy. Look, look at these first deep grandstands that you saw in Paris and we've seen what they're building in, in Rome. Um, the Ryder cup just continues to go like this. And I think the PGA looked at it and said, we've, we've got a place that this fits and uh, the results and the weather and the way the golf course was set up was so well done that we'd, we'd be smart to, uh, to come back here again. I remember watching that. You mentioned earlier Patrick Reed, Roy McIlroy match, and thinking, "Wow, this is this is something special." There's a different atmosphere in the air, and I and I know this is controversial, but I do think that um, it's sad that Patrick Reed's not going to be at the Ryder Cup. He's like a he's like a pantomime villain in the UK. It's great. I, I really enjoy watching it. Um, that's one of the things the Ryder Cup provides is a uh, it's a it's a story. It's almost like a pantomime. In a way that uh, is probably more engaging than a standard tournament. Uh, what do you think? The why do you think the Ryder Cup has that uh, ability? Why is, and if it's to do with match play, why is there not more match play played? Well, I think some things are are, are tough to replicate. Yeah, what they've tried with the Presidents Cup, haven't they? Right. So the Presidents Cup yeah. started. The 90s, but you really need to have history and a rivalry that there's a chance that either side could win. And we, look, we saw that with the Ryder Cup. Jack Nicholas saw it with the Ryder Cup. He goes, look, this thing's going to go away unless the other side has a chance to win. And Maybe the USA bit off more than they could chew in taking on all of continental Europe, but it, it made a shift, uh, didn't it? You know, When people like Seve Ballesteros was able to start getting involved from Spain. Um, and now you kind of look at the President's Cup. It's really been dominated by the USA for the last 20 years. So when you, you kind of have one side controlling all of it, it, you lose interest. But with the Ryder Cup now, is 
you know, both sides can win, right? And it, yeah, it, tends, yeah. it tends to go back and forth. And uh, USA is still trying to figure out a way to, to win overseas for the first time in 30 years. But I think what makes it so intriguing to your point is when we go to the Masters, you know, you may be rooting for Rory McIlroy and I may be rooting for an American, Jordan Spieth, you know, anybody else. Um, but when we go to a Ryder Cup, we're all rooting for the side. So the, the, the cheers get louder, the moments get greater. You're playing for your country slash nation, right? So there's a little more on the line. You're playing for 11 of the people that you're, you're on a team with. Um, so we're all rooting for a side. And to the comment you just made a minute ago, I think people may not ever root for Patrick Reed or a villain like that individually, but put him in the stars and stripes and we love him. You know, all of a sudden, the things that drove us nuts. Um, <laughs> Patrick Reed's swagger, remember, you know, comes out and says, I'm, I'm a top five player in the world. You're like, stop it. Oh, but you're on our team? All right, let's go. And I think, yeah. you know, the right, those villains that, I mean, look, Ian Poulter used to get under our skin for years. Yeah. I'm sure Seve had the same effect. And Paul Azinger probably had the same effect, you know, to European fans. You, you need those types of players. And I think... Look, it's controversial to pick Justin Thomas, but you need those types of players on your team that, one, I think, you know, Patrick Reed had the swagger to say, look, put me out first. I want to go first. And for me, being close to it in 2016, I realized there's not a lot of players that want that moment. They really okay. don't. They're, they're happy to play in the middle. There are very few players that are conditioned to say, give me, I want to go first. You know, Graham McDowell did such a great job in 2014. You think about, those players that sometimes play in that first match, Paul Azinger was like, you know, put me out first thing at Seve, you know, as a rookie, I want it. Uh, they're, <laughs> they're, they're rare breeds. And uh, when they come yeah. along, I think you try to keep them on your team as long as you can. You know, look, I think Poulter got picked for his last four Ryder Cups because he may never win an individual major, but he's, his, he's so, his DNA is so well built for match play. And uh, the yeah. Ryder Cup is not for everyone. Um, I would I would say that just being close to it. There are some players uh, that just they may do well individually, um, but the Ryder Cup is a different culture in that it's sink or swim, and you find out pretty quick which one you are. Yeah, no, it's um, it's quite an amazing, and especially with the atmosphere, a lot of these players won't have experienced the chanting on the first tee in their first ever Ryder Cup uh, match. They will never have experienced that. Um, so when you set when the course was set up at Hazeltine, you it was set up for essentially the U.S. Bombers, right? And um, was that a game plan from the start? Yeah, I think. Um, well, I think for me personally, it it became very personal for me when they announced Davis Love was going to be our captain. Uh, I I cared about the Ryder Cup, but then once they, they announced Davis, I was you know he's coming off of a really hard loss in Chicago in 2012. So um, my mindset shifted into what is he going to be asking me about? How can I help? And uh, my family had just given me the last 20 years of Ryder Cup on DVD, uh, the, the winter prior to 2014. And I went about just immersing myself, and I would have been doing this stuff anyway, probably. Uh, but I went about watching the last 20 years of Ryder Cup and trying to really understand why do we keep losing? What is Europe doing? And um, it just watching, you know, some things started sticking out at me and then I started putting numbers to what I was seeing and then it really started sticking out. And uh, by the time Davis showed up, I, I'd had all my homework done. And at the same time, we had a, a group start kind of wooing the PGA. They were called Scouts Inc. Uh, with their own uh, studies and findings that were very similar to mine. And I think uh, 
Davis's strength in doing it again was he was willing to acknowledge things they could do differently or better. And at the time, he was kind of saying, look, we really haven't played the numbers game. Maybe it's time we, we start paying attention to it. And um, Paul McGinley wrote a, a fantastic book, which almost kind of gives us a little bit of, of why that did so well in 2014 called Landscape for Success. And uh, Paul McGinley had a great approach to how he set up Glen Eagles is really to the strengths of his team and to the weaknesses of the Americans. And we tend to see this go back and forth. I think we're seeing the rough is, is getting grown up at Marcus Simone, right? So um, mm-hmm. with Hazeltine, we're kind of looking at, look, yes, our, we, we do have some guys that can absolutely send it. But what really, I think, surprised Davis was how many great wedge players he had from 75 to 125 that year. He had Phil Mickelson, you know, Spieth, uh, Cooch, Zach Johnson. Uh, there were a number of other great wedge players from 75 to 125 that initially going into it, his mindset was, we're going to play the par five shorter to try and make more birdies. And I think what we tried to help him understand was your best chance of making birdies in some of these par fives is to really stretch it out. You know, Paisley had three holes that you could play over 600 yards was to really stretch it out into like, let's make this a three shot hole. It's going to be at your advantage. And once they started understanding the collective strength of the team by the numbers, it really then shifted, you know, how do they set the golf course? That's amazing, your research. Um, so what other parts did you find that Europe were better or that America were better within that uh, team? Well, I think when you look, uh, look back at uh, the one prior, if you looked at Glenn Eagles from 2014, I think Davis's initial reaction was, you know, we just need to get a little better at, at alternate shot. I think from a 10,000-foot view, that was pretty obvious. Americans had lost 7-1 to one in alternate shot at Glenn Eagles. I said, look, if you actually go inside the numbers, they're not that bad at alternate shot. On part threes and fours, America was actually even if not a little better uh, in alternate shot than Europe was. But on par fives, they got annihilated. And I said, if you can understand why, Paul McGinley put the blocks down at 505 on holes 2, 16, and 18. And he had uh, a great driver with a great mid-iron player. So I think he had Rory driving for Sergio, Stenson for Rose, Dubasan for McDowell, and it was either uh, somebody was with Keimer, Donaldson. Jamie Donaldson was with Martin Keimer. So he had a guy that, like, on the 16th hole of Glen Eagles, there's a bunker out there at about 280 that uh, they could fly, and then the, mid, the great mid-arm player would get them home at two. Whereas the Americans kind of ha- were sending out a five-guard basketball team, essentially, just as far as length. So I think on those holes, you know, we had – you know, Jim Furyk was driving for Hunter Mahan, for example, and uh, <laughs> uh, some who was somebody was driving. Maybe Cooch was driving for somebody else, and that we couldn't carry that bunker at 280. It was cold, a little bit of wind, and we kept driving into the bunker, and then we had to lay up, and we're we're making par or bogey or worse, and losing to to fours, right? So um, again, McGinley had a, a very intentional setup uh, to get his players to understand. Here's how we're going to play these par fives, and. Well, again, when I started looking at the numbers, like that's the Ryder Cup was par fives an alternate shot. Like it just that ended it right there. And getting Davis to understand, all right, now let's let's play it backwards. If you're gonna have a pair like Jimmy Walker and Zach Johnson, where do we want Zach hitting the third shot from? Let's ask Zach, where does he want to play that shot from? So uh, we had a, a contingency plan for if the wind is blowing thirty miles an hour out of the south, we wake up, you know, if it's we've had six inches of rain overnight, the ball's not going to roll. You know, we can control where we put down the T markers. Uh, that's what the home team gets to do. Um, 
So I think it was just giving a little more intentional thought to like, look, we have great players. I think USA's mindset for so many years was we just show up and, and we play golf. We're going to win. Europe's pretty good. We need to give a little more thought to this. Let's actually be intentional on what do we have within our, our team? If we're going to pick players, let's do it with some intent on who we're going to pair them with and how are they going to play this golf course? Again, there, there are only so many things that you can't control. Um, after that, you have to you actually have to go out and hit the shots, but you can potentially set yourself up for success. So I think somebody said it recently. I think the great test of a Ryder Cup is can you win on the road because it's not set up to your advantage. It's set up to their team's advantage. Maybe only, maybe almost too much to where we really haven't had a close Ryder Cup since 2012. Uh, I get the feeling that we're we're coming into one here in a couple of weeks. But um, it may have become too much of an advantage that the home teams have really figured out how to set it up for their advantage. And, uh, you know, I, the Ryder Cup is the best when it's close. It's suffocating. No, it's so good. It's suffocating when it's close. So now I've, I've actually, like, my mindset with Ryder Cup is, like, I, I really don't even care who wins. I just want it to get weird on Sunday. Yeah, I want, I want that Hazeltine. Yeah. Uh, not Hazeltine, that Miracle Medina, that was... Yeah, I just I've watched that video about a hundred times. Yeah, it always pops up in my Sky Golf. <laughs> anyway, the um, so obviously they're going to tighten the course this week um, at Marco Simone, um, and Europe have got a bit of form coming in. What do you think about um, America's chances? Well, I mean, every time they head over there on paper, you go, "Yeah, look at look at who they got this." This shouldn't be that close. And that's where yeah. Europe thrives. They, they know that. They know that's the mindset coming in. Um, I think sometimes what, what's really tough for America, look at, you know, Zach Johnson's put himself out on a ledge here with some of his picks, right? Is um, I think sometimes that, you know, Americans play with the weight of expectation. And Europe loves the underdog card. They've been playing it for 30 years ever since Jacqueline took over, right? Um, is they love to be like, look, everyone thinks they're going to win, you know, so we get to go out there. And I think one of the great chapters in uh, McKinley's book was uh, excitement, not fear. And Europe tends to play with that excitement and that joy. And it's an opportunity for them. Whereas Americans feel like, well, the only thing we can do here this week is lose. And yeah. that's the great mental challenge um, is uh, can you play, can you play to the level that you're expected to when you're expected to, to win? I think that's been the real hurdle for America for, for 30 years, especially when we had Tiger Woods, right? Well, they have Tiger. You know, that was – Tiger was a like a bull seeing red. You know, if you gave a player like, you know, John Rahm, you know, in a singles match against Tiger in 2018, like I get a chance to beat the great Tiger Woods in a singles match. But like that is such a like on Toro, you know, for a Spanish player like that. So um, I think, you know, you, you these things, they don't get played on paper. You know, um, the Ryder Cup doesn't care that Brian Harmon's the Open champion or that Wyndham Clark is the, uh, the U.S. Open champion. Like, that is – that's just more gas in the tank for Europe. You know, when they get a chance to have this great stage to, to show that they're equal, if not better players, especially in this format of match play, um, yeah, the, the narrative feeds very well into how they are motivated as players. Um, just going back to something that you mentioned earlier about um, – you speaking to Davis Love and becoming friends with Davis. Um, that must have been quite an exhilarating experience from 
the first person that really got you into it to then um to then him actually now becoming the architect at probably the course you spent the most years is that quite a i don't know how to describe it it's almost manifested by you it's quite amazing it is it is um i remember sitting in my office in february 2015 um Tim Rosefort, who's passed away since, uh, remembered me from my time at Seminole. And he texted me uh, late one night. I was the only person still in the office to say, look, uh, I remember you from your time down here. Your story and your involvement with Davis, you, you deserve to know they're going to name him as captain on Monday. And I, I, mean, I looked at that text for 15 minutes. Um, James, I think there were there were times along along the way where I would find myself walking to my car going, is this really happening? Um, I can't believe this is happening. And there were other moments where uh, I would walk to my car and be like, I, I was made to be in this moment. You know, this is exactly where I'm supposed yeah. to be right now. Um, I think that the next fall, uh, I was in New York City for Davis Love's Hall of Fame induction in New York City. And in Davis's speech, he talked about, you know, if you play golf long enough, things will come around full circle. Right? If you just kind of keep your eyes open. And I've, the 2016 Ryder Cup was a collision of my life in golf to that point. I mean, look, Tom Lehman was the first professional golfer I ever met, who's from Minnesota, was the first assistant captain named. You know, it, there were so many things along that line um, that uh, was just confirmation that I was at the right place at the right time. And, you know, sometimes all the stars line up, and, and 2016 was one of those years for me. Quite amazing. Um, so moving on from the Ryder Cup. Uh, you decided to um, step down as head pro at Hazeltine and want to spend more time with your family. Is that because the job was so encompassing? And why is it so encompassing if it is? Well, being a golf pro, I think first is it's a labor of love uh, with the game and the people that play it. And uh, I've said for years, I think, you, you get into the golf profession because you love the game. You stay because you love sharing it with other people. And that's what applied to me. Um, I think when I was an assistant at, at Marion, you know, I met my wife in Philadelphia, but coming up through Seminole and Canoebrook and when you're young and single, like there's nowhere else I wanted to be. I didn't want to go home at the end of the night. I'd you know, play golf till dark or stayed at the club till dark and wake up the next morning ready to do it. But as time goes along and you add people to your life, in such a great way, my wife, and now we have uh, three girls, uh, three daughters that are now 12, seven, and four. Um, the expectations of your time now get spread out a little wider and it's tougher to put in those long hours and those long days, knowing that, you know, there are people that are missing you on the other end. I think just the realization that I got to James was, uh, the summer of 21. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched, uh, the movies back to the future, the whole series, right? Um, yep. You know, I was watching Back to the Future that summer with my oldest daughter, and you know, Martin McFly ends up back in 1955 and accidentally interrupts his family's story. And as time goes along, you know, he has this picture of his uh, with his brother and his sister. You know, he's he's getting erased from the photo because the story is now changing, and he's no longer in it. And he's panicking and trying to get George McFly to step up and knock out Biff and put the whole story back together again. And I think what just slowly started to dawn on me was just, you know, looking at my wife's Instagram that summer was, you know, there's so many pictures of her and the girls and I'm not in it, you know, because I'm, I'm at work. Um, look, golf is a game that 
when the sun is up and, and the, the weather is warm, you know, people are going to play it. And, you know, the expectation of the golf professionals, they're going to be there. And I just had that inner tug of war that summer of, you know, is this me for another 10, 20 years? And will I look back with regret um, that uh, I missed, you know, I, my daughter at the time was already nine, 10, you know, I've already, you know, another nine years, she's going to be off to college and she's gone. And uh, I'd, I'd seen a statistic recently that, you know, as a parent, about 90% of the time that you spend with your kid will, will be from ages 18 and under. And once they go off to college and start their life, you, you're lucky to get 10% of that. And um, just that realization, uh, you know, my wife and I having serious talks that summer about who are we and where are we going and uh, getting to that fall of 2021, that was uh, a difficult decision because it, it meant giving up something that I love for people that I love. And also just the, the complete fear of what else can I do? <laughs> uh, being fully transparent was we didn't really have a plan. It was just more of an intentional. Um, we're going to put the family first with this, but um, I was able to get to a place of peace of being like, look, I've had a blessed road. You know, what the game has given me as a golf professional is more than I will ever give it. Um, that was hard to let go. Uh, but uh, it was the right thing for our family. And, uh, you know, two years later now, I, I don't have any regrets about that decision. Uh, surely there, there are so many things that I miss. I miss the people. I miss the game. I don't play as much as I did. I miss the, the staff um, and just all the day-to-day -day stuff that you deal with. All those little moments that you celebrate with people, not just the really great ones, like, you know, somebody, a birth of a baby or a wedding or somebody's lowest score or a hole-in-one or club championship whatever those things are but i think what i also just started to realize as a golf professional is you you grieve with these families because they've become a part of your life you know when, when they lose someone it feels like you lost somebody in your own family so i enjoyed being <clears throat> excuse me in the crosshairs of all of those different relationships for as many years as i was but um again i just was able to wake up i think luckily in time that if 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 I had to choose one road from here on in, it was husband and father. Yeah, absolutely. So you've started a new project now, and uh, not new, but uh, you're doing the Archive 22 as your new business. Explain a bit about it. Well, I think, yeah, I think similar to uh, what I shared about my, my entry into golf, this, this venture that we're on right now was not anything that we saw coming. And I would put in the accidental category as well. Um, my first dream, James, growing up, uh, before I even found golf, you know, my, my dream for years was I wanted to be an architect and that was all driven by the, these great trips that I had with my dad as a kid, where he'd take me around the country to these great cathedrals and sports, you know, specifically baseball stadiums, you know, these old relic buildings like Tiger Stadium, the original Tiger Stadium, Candlestick Park or the Astrodome in Houston or Wrigley Field, Fenway, you know. I was so captivated by how different all these buildings were. And this was right when Sky Dome in, in Toronto was built with a hotel into the stadium. So I was really intrigued by just the future of stadium architecture. Camden Yards had just been built in Baltimore, which was a throwback, which you know so many places have followed that blueprint now. Um, I thought I was going to be a, a stadium architect was my mindset. And so I was always doing blueprints and architectural tools and engineering going through high school. And then I think, rubber met the road and the harsh reality, James, was I, I was not a great student. 
you know, I met with my guidance counselor. Neither was I, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> we all turned out fine. Um, but my guidance counselor was, you know, kind of in the, hey, I, I'm glad that you want to be an architect, but you know, we've got to figure out plan B or because you don't quite have the grades for it. And, and thankfully, golf was there. And, it, and it, I wouldn't change a thing. I would not. Um, in the fall of 2018, uh, we uh, we gave birth. Well, I shouldn't say we. It was one person gave birth. And it wasn't me. <laughs> My wife gave birth to our third daughter, Charlotte, and um, everything went smooth. But on our trip home from the hospital, uh, she started experiencing some, some chest pain and tightness and wasn't quite sure what was going on. And, and thankfully, I think like listening to your gut on do you lay for it, lay up or go for it on a part five, um, she said, I, you know, I'm going to call my doctor. This doesn't feel right. And um, thankfully, we went back to uh, an emergency room. They ran some tests and they discovered a, a blood clot in her lung. Oh, uh, which, God which is a Widowmaker, um, you know, mm -hmm. pulmonary embolism were, were two words that I'd never heard before in my life. Uh, thankfully, we were, they were able to get a rush to a downtown hospital, uh, treated. Everything's fine. You know, a week later, we were able to go home, but but we're all pretty shook up in the process. And I think I usually am traveling and going to the places that are warm in the winter and traveling with members. Uh, that winter, I was just going to stay close to home um, and uh, just be there for her and just the realization of, you know, life looks a little different than it did before. So Minnesota winters are dark and long and cold. And uh, I needed something to do to occupy my mind. I, I love reading, but I, I wanted to do something else. And I thought about getting the drawing board back out for so many years. And this just seemed like the right time. Um, so I got the drawing board out and I just started drawing things. It was just a way of killing time. It was a hobby. And, um, as time went along, I, I started drawing things that um, were around the history of the game and the championships and all the things that I was talking about all the time when being at places like Marion and Hazeltine, you're talking about the history all the time. And I kind of just wanted to have Wikipedia for my wall and a quick reference to point at something when people would come in my office, you know, you know, James, where are you from? And what do you love? And where have you been? And it was more of a conversation starter than anything. And um, it kind of took on a life of its own that, the, the accidental marketing tour that we had in the, the summer of 2019, I, I gave it to Tom Coyne, who was going to go around America and play all the U.S. Open courses amongst many others. But uh, I just drawn this thing that I called the history of the U.S. Open. I said, look, Tom, I, I can't sell this, but I can give it away. You know, here, take some, give it away. And as, as time kind of went along, people started asking me about it. And um, we, we, can, we didn't see that as the next step of our career, you know, when I stepped away from Hazeltine. But, um, in the fall, uh, a few months after I left Hazeltine, I was helping Shane Ryan uh, write a book on the Ryder Cup. And I sent him this piece that I'd drawn on the Ryder Cup. And you know, he's kind of like, what is this? Explain this. And when I explained it to him, he, he published an article on Golf Digest on Christmas Eve of 2021. And it was right at that time that we were trying to narrow down what is the next road. And I think the artwork wasn't even in the top 50. Um, but the more we gave it thought, I said, maybe this could be it. And maybe it could allow me to be home as a father and husband in a way that I, I wasn't before, if we can make this work. And, um, yeah, I think my wife kind of uh, essentially gave me the, the, the Q school talk, which is like, you've got one year to make this work. <laughs> and uh, it's not making money. We got to figure something else out. And, but I think it was more of a, she believed in me. Uh, she believed in us. It's become so much of an us story more than, than me. Um, and it has kept me at home and, and around uh, what our girls are doing on a daily basis. And I'm so thankful to be on this journey with her um, and more people will come along with it. But um, yeah, it's, it was just born of, 
it, it was just born of my love for the history of the game and uh, a drawing ability that I had as a kid and just wanted to kind of unearth it and draw things that again, I, it was, I was drawing for an audience of one. I was drawing for me. I wanted to just have something that if I was happy with it when I was done on my wall, it went and, but uh, what it's really become over time is just, it's a, it's a great conversational piece that everyone has a different attachment with these pieces that I'm making. And um, I'm just fun to be, it's just fun to be a part of it. The interesting thing from our point of view is we know at top 100 golf courses that it's not easy to use the logo of a top 100 golf course. So can you explain the, what happened there and how you've gotten <coughs> acceptance from all these top golf courses are very protective over their media? Yeah, I just mentioned uh, two words before, you know, pulmonary embolism. I never heard those two words before. And when I left Hazeltine, I never heard the words intellectual property before. Um, I, I knew enough that, again, when I was at Hazeltine and people were like, well, I want to buy it. I'm like, well, yeah, all these logos, I don't know how this works, but I'm pretty sure I can't sell this. It doesn't, I can't just take, you know, Shinnecock's logo and decide to make money on this. Like that isn't, you know, so I didn't even, I called the USJ. I said, look, don't even worry. I'm not selling these out of my basement. You know, I, I'm going to give them a little <laughs> bit. But, um, so when I went back to the USGA in the spring of 2022, I said, look, we've kind of joked about this b- before, but how does this look? You know, these pieces with logos, is there any way for us to even move forward with this? They said, well, the, the header is about all we own, US Open. That, that's our piece. All 51 other logos don't belong to us. So, you know, you're going to have to go get permission from all these clubs. And, you know. Yeah, I think there's, there's two roads, James, right? And one is very tempting. One is don't ask anyone and just go. And yeah. hope that your phone doesn't ring. Um, make as much money as you can. Uh, sell as many as you can before you get shut down. You know, my wife and I, that was never on the table. You know, we, we play a game that you call the rules on yourself when no one's looking. Um, that's not the spirit of the game. You know, if I were to get a call from Marion and be like, what are you doing? I mean, that's a death sentence in the game of golf. It's like changing your scorecard, yeah. the scores table. Right. So, so hard swallow, you know, we're going to have to do this the right way. And I don't know how this is going to go. Um, we may, we may get one. Yes. We may get 50 no's, but let's at least hit the putt. Let, let's find out, you know, there's, you know, let's find out. Um, I think what gave us a, a sense of optimism was when I looked at the U.S. Open clubs, you know, I knew more than half of the golf professionals because of, of the work that I've been in. So we were able to at least get the conversation. And uh, I think it's a new request that had never been done before to, to try and get all these clubs to think the same way and be on the same piece of artwork. Um, it took a lot of groupthink. And to say to everyone, like, look, here's how this agreement is going to look. You're giving me permission not ownership. It's a permission. I have no ownership of these logos that can be rescinded tomorrow if they're not comfortable with how it's going. So there's an amount of trust that's being extended to me. But I think what they discovered um, as we went along, James, was it's a, it's a piece of artwork which celebrates each club's involvement with each championship. What's the PGA Championship, the US Open, the Ryder Cup, or the pieces that we have out right now. It's, look, you know, Marion's had it five times and Wingfoot has had it six times and Oakmont has had it nine times. And, you know, it started in Newport in 1895, but, you know, Aaron Hills and Los Angeles Country Club, they're the new kids on the block. But each of these clubs, it's not a, you know, it's not a lot of them. There's 51 that have hosted a U.S. Open. 
I think each club is so proud of their involvement and their association, that championship and the members at these places, whether it's Midlothian or Glenview in Chicago, you know, or Chambers Bay in Seattle, like they're all so proud to have hosted this tournament that when that made sense to them, the opposition to it started to melt away. I think there's a really great, there's a great prominent club just south of us uh, in Chicago that said, look, you know, we've, we've never given commercial use of our logo. That's kind of a non-starter. We don't, we don't do that, but you know, we're proud of our association with the USGA and the U S open. And this is tastefully done. It's well done. You know, if it didn't look good, uh, I don't think they'd be interested, but it was the, they felt that it was a very tasteful representation of each club's association with the championship and the hand-drawn nature of it really set it apart. You know, if it were a, a digital print and somebody just copy and pasted the logos on there, and typed up all the, the letters, you know, it, it probably wouldn't have the appeal that it did, but the interested it was really what it was born of. You know, it was just, it was my love letter to the game. It wasn't ever done with this intent of like, well, this is going to be a career. I'm going to yeah. prop off of you. But, um, once they saw it as a as a win for their image, you know, and their association with the championship, uh, we were able to move forward. Uh, it wasn't quick. Um, I would tell you there's probably three to four hundred people in my network that every time it got sticky, you know, or it came came to a halt at a club, inevitably somebody from my life would just raise their hand and be like, I, "I've got it. Let me go in and talk to people." And enough people advocating for it. Um, it was an emotional process. Uh, I'd say. Some days I'd wake up and say, like, we're absolutely getting this done. And then the next morning I'd be like, nope, it's all going to fall apart tomorrow. So, <laughs> um, but I think now we're not even a year old with that, with the first piece, the U.S. Open. But I think if you were to ask the clubs, I think you know, each one of them would say, like, we're really, we're really happy with how this has gone and how it's represented us and, and engage people in the history of the game, you know, especially from the USJ standpoint. The in terms of logos, it's a big talking point in golf. Which golf, of course, is the best logo? What's your favorite? I love. I mean, I'm, Marion's always going to be sentimental. I think people point to that as one of the, the, the really obvious, distinct wicker basket with the, with the Scotch broom. But I love things like the Chicago Golf Club. You know, uh, with far and shore. Uh, I love logos that have that feel of look, you're up in you know the Scotland area, but like you know, think about Liverpool. Like you'll never walk alone or um, Port Marnock had that like be up in their logo. I love logos that have a little bit of that, that mindset in it. Um, so Chicago golf, which is one of my favorite golf clubs anyway. Um, I love that logo. Um, favorite one to draw. Well, I love anything that has detail and complexity, you know, like the, the congressional with the capital you know, logo, anything that has complexity that I can get into with the, the tip of my pencil. Um, I'm all for, you know, if it's just, a couple interlocking letters that that's not going to take me that long. I, I love the, you know, give me something that's, that's really hard, especially the ones for the open championship with all the shields and the detail, you know, something like, are you, hmm? are you going to do an open championship one? The, you, uh, yeah. So British I, open. I have done it. It is, it is done. Um, I read through the Claire chug this summer and, you know, we're going through the same process that we went through with the other three right now and just trying to engage uh, the 14 past host clubs and, and do it in a very respectful way. I think again, remember like these logos don't belong to me. You know, they belong to these clubs and if they're comfortable with how this would work, then we'll move forward. But if they're not like no hard feelings, again, that this belongs to them. It does not belong to me. So if uh, you ever see it get out in the marketplace, it'd only be because uh, those clubs saw it in the same light that the other clubs did before. Um, so I think 
we're probably going to call it very soon. We've been going for an hour, which is quite impressive. The um, I always end on the same things. I want to hear your top five favorite golf courses. Doesn't have to be five. Someone said thirteen. Um, so I just want to hear what the golf courses that mean the most to you that you would go and play if you could only play those courses for the rest of your life. Yeah, I, I think that's there are variations to that question. You just kind of hit on one that I like to ask people a lot, and um, it kind of reminds me of uh, David McClay Kid. One time was telling me because the way that you know you're playing a great golf course is if you get to the 14th tee and you're sad that you're running out of holes, you're someplace great. And I knew exactly yeah. what he was talking about when he said it. Um, my five, and, and when I ran into you uh, as we were leaving St. Andrews, you know, I said, James, where's home for you? He'd go, um, you're, you're in North Barrick, right? Yeah. I said, well, yeah, North Barrick, how special is that? So that was, you know, I pulled up my phone and said, look at my list. That's right there in my top five. So my list, you know, is, Probably not going to change much, but is has always been Somerset Hills, where I grew up caddying and learning how to play the game. <laughs> my favorite. Uh, it's in Burnsville, New Jersey. Uh, Chicago Golf, Marion National Golf Links, and then North Berwick. Um, <clears throat> the variation of those five, just from an architectural standpoint, but just the sentimentality. I would never get bored. You, you could just choose any one of those five, and I continue to play it on on replay. Uh, would be fine, but I think you know recently I found myself. On the 14th tee at Shore Acres, um, feeling that same feeling that the Dave McClay kid talked about. Shore Acres is fantastic, um, but the the Rainer McDonald style, you know, just I love it. Um, and uh, you get to play the ground game especially. But I think, look, I just played in Ireland a few years ago uh, at Port Rush, World County Down, and but um, I think when you ask that question, if, you know, if people don't list anything in the UK, it just means they haven't been there yet um, because I think. The UK is where golf is the greatest, but the spirit of it, the soul of it, the people, the ground, the wind, the elements, like it's where the game was born. And I think it's the, the greatest stuff. So it's, I found myself looking forward more to when I get to go overseas than, than things here in the States for sure. The interesting thing that you showed me is you actually, not many people do this, but you have a list of pretty much a lot of golf courses on your phone. So how many is on the list and is it all the golf course you played or is it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, my top 75 that I've played. Yeah. So I, you know, I love, you know, well, that one's going to knock that one down a little bit. That one's going to jump up to, you know, close to top 10. And um, it's a great conversation piece. I think, you know, just like these, these pieces with the logos or I have a top 100 pegboard over here in the corner of my office. Again, like anything that kind of people have logo ball collections, you know, where have you been? That that's the, the the great. I think logos have so much power that you know if I saw you walking around the Walker Cup with a North Barrick logo, I'd be like, oh, yeah, kind of a knowing nod. Yeah, James gets it; he's been somewhere great. And or uh, that's one of the cool things at the Walker Cup is you're standing in a sea of people that's a logo fest, yeah. but then you're standing next to someone who could be might have a wing foot um, top on. You go, oh, do you know blah blah blah? Yes. So everyone in the crowd is talking to each other. That's it. I think that's what I've tried to, to create for people for their walls with these pieces with the major championships is if you were looking right behind me at the Ryder Cup or the US Open, you know, where have you been? Where have you not been? And you may say, well, I've never been to Chicago golf. And I may say, well, if you're ever over there, I want to introduce you to this person. And that's how our game works. I mean, you immediately said, look, if you're ever back in North Barrick, you know, I'd love to have you for a game. Like, I love that reciprocity. Um, I have a, a book. Um, sitting right here in my office it was uh it's a book called a tribute to george walker sorry here i'm holding it up yeah yeah um ran to uh 
a man named Chip from St. Louis, uh, who is the historian at St. Louis Country Club. And he started telling me about this book that he created with his dad. And uh, all of a sudden it shows up in my office two weeks after the Ryder Cup, or sorry, the Walker Cup. And um, I'll be sending him back a you know piece of artwork in return. But there's this great reciprocity. And I think logos is just that we're all trying to find our tribe and the people that see life the way that we see it and who we're going to run with. And um, logos have this unlocking power of just connecting people in a way that maybe, you know, if you had, didn't have anything on your shirt or your sweater, you walked by them on the street, you wouldn't know. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of logos don't even have writing on them anymore. They're just kind of a foot with a wing on it. You know, that's one. Um, uh, if you know, you know, right. Yeah. The Sleepy Hollow, that's a great logo as well. Um, top five golf holes. Oh, you got a Sleepy Hollow? My God. <laughs> I'm, I'm checking all the boxes this morning, aren't I, right? Um, yeah, very much. You know, some of the top golf holes, um, it, it, again, like when you kind of find people who see the, the world the way that you see it, you kind of go, oh, that person's like me. I was listening to uh, Andy Johnson uh, was on uh, with Gary Williams on Five Clubs recently, and Gary asked him the same question. He's like, you know, what's your favorite green? in golf and uh in my head i'm going oh it's 16 at north barrack and he goes i love the 16th at north barrack i'm like see that's a that's a kindred that's a kindred spirit um the 16th at north barrack uh, you know what they now kind of use for the Ritz, but it's ex- to an extreme um is so fun i think i missed it the first time i played there and i was chipping with a five iron up the slope to try and hold that green um but uh i love you know- hmm? Something that people don't know about that hole is the ladies play the same par as the men, but the ladies' tees are actually behind the men's. Ah, see? Yeah. How about that? It must be one of the f- wild, but there you go. Yeah, find another one. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I think like if I were to just kind of lump in, like uh, get really specific on something, uh, I was able to do it this summer for the first time in a long time. Uh, but playing the back nine at Somerset Hills after 5 p.m. when the sun is setting um, is some of the the best golf, you know, for me, you know, something that would never get old. Um, so I'm, I'm more of a, uh, time of day kind of player. I would much rather play when the sun is going down than when the sun is getting up, you know, give me the end of the day twilight. Um, that's it, more than like golf holes. Um, but I, I love things like, um, like holes 16 through 18 at the Creek on Long Island. You know, it, I, I see more stretches of holes that I love. Uh, more than just specific holes. That's just been my my, my yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much. I think um, is there anything you'd like to tell anyone about your career in golf that uh, maybe something that you've stood by or a mantra that you tell your young um, assistants when you were uh, the head pro? Is there anything that a uh, word of knowledge? Well, I think just to, to golfers listening. You know, I've I've tried to be real bullish on. Um, as players, we get so caught up in our score and our identity and <clears throat> how we're going to fit in with the crowd and, you know, my, my handicap and that stuff really doesn't matter. You know, when you get to the end of this, this rope here, uh, when you're, when your time is done playing this game, when you look back, you know, you'll, you'll remember some moments, you know, maybe you had a hole in one or you, you won a tournament, you had a couple moments that you really played well, but I don't think that's what you're going to remember. You're going to remember the places this game took you. And you're going to remember the people that it introduced you to and the friends that you made because of it. So don't lose sight of that. I think um, nowadays when I play golf with people, I'm, I'm so more focused on getting to know the people than how I'm playing. Um, I'm, you know, I want to enjoy my time out there, but um, I more look forward to like 
who's going to walk into my story tomorrow because of this game? You know, people like you, you know, we're oh, well. standing behind the 10th, you know, or, or the 9th there at St. Andrews. And all of a sudden, it, we, you know, somebody introduced us and here we are a couple weeks later still talking. But um, don't miss the connecting power of this game uh, to connect you with other people. You know, try to play your best, but uh, but don't miss where you are. Take a look around. Enjoy it. You know, don't let a bad shot or a bad round you know, throw off, you know, the, the real magic that the sport gives you. I think that's what I've been trying to tell people over and over again is play as well as you can, but really enjoy the people that you're with. Really preaching to the choir at Top 100 because um, our mantras are uh, we're a traveling community of top go- uh, of golfers playing great golf courses. Yeah. And I play fast lunch slow as well. Yeah, yeah I think it was either you or Hobby that had that on their shirt. Um, and I said, I love that. I, like, I, I still haven't done the... Uh, the day at, at Muirfield where you, you, know, you play the alternate shot and then you go have a three-hour lunch and then you play another three-hour alternate shot, like that is a great day to me, you know, I'm sure to many other people. And um, But I think that's a great mantra um, is, you know, let's get around it fast, but then let's get back in the clubhouse and, and really enjoy our company there as well. I won't uh, say where or, um, but I played a foursomes match. We played 36 holes. Um, with lunch in between and we spent five hours on lunch and it was three hours 59 over the golf course in 36 holes we were less than four hours it's a great day it was freezing outside though yeah. so you yeah. can understand why we were quick yeah but uh it was a fantastic day um thank you very much for coming on it'd be great to have you over and play a bit more golf and uh if i ever come over i'll come say hi you're always welcome um thank you very much thanks thank you Thank you so much, Chandler. It was an absolute blast. Really interesting hearing your insight. Um, so if you want to get in contact, my email is james at top100golfcourses.com um, or just get me on the Instagram. And remember, play fast, lunch slow.